Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm the favorite. And I'm the machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. This is episode one of our new season, talking about the movies of 2018. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And as Dave has indicated already, we are talking about the movie The Favorite. Queen, you are mad, giving me a palace. It is a monstrous extravagance, Mrs. Molly, we are at war. We won! Oh, it is not over, we must continue. Oh! Oh, I did not know that. The Queen is an extraordinary person. They were all staring, weren't they? I can tell even if I can't see, and I heard the word fat, fat, and, and ugly. No one but me would dare, and I did not. She's been stalked by tragedy. Everyone leaves me. I apologize for my appearance. I hoped I might be employed here by you as something. A monster for the children to play with, perhaps. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue this show since, you know, the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there. Uh, it'll either have come out a couple days before this episode drops or a couple days after, but we're talking about the documentary from 1982, Kawanis I think no, is how you say Koya, it. Koya Aniskatsi. Ko- whatever. You know, for a movie that you love and I didn't... <laughs> You're the one who can't pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Well, Just think of that shitty song at the beginning. Go on this quatsi. Yeah. No, wow, that's completely wrong. I love it. Yeah. I Awful. feel like they we're in Temple of Doom and they're leading us off into the <laughs> into the lava pits. Someone's ready to rip your heart out of your chest. Um so if you want to hear us talk about that movie, you can do so over there by signing up for our Patreon. Um Dave, you know, we also are known. Not just as like the preeminent movie review podcast on the internet, but also oh, yeah. for deep and rich fiction that we create each and every week. We've had crazy adventures over the last you know few years. Yes, I remember all of them. We got back to Earth finally mm-hmm. after going through space and time and all these different things. We, of course, are here in the year 2023, but are talking about the movies of 2018. Oh, okay. I'm okay with that. Tell me what you're with your family again. What's it like being back with the fam? Super. Yeah, super. It's fine. My kid age, I guess. Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I missed crucial parts of my son's life, apparently, uh, mm-hmm. in a cabin with you, Kyle. But uh, can we're talk probably now? all better for it. I know. <laughs> Strange. It's been three years. Mm-hmm. It's been three years. We received an email, Dave. Oh, Looks like it's totally legit to our Kyle and Dave VS the machine at gmail.com. Perfect. Uh, from a Do guy. Do we need help with our SEO? Kind of. I mean. <laughs> Uh, he writes, Christian this is, by the way, Christian, came across Kyle and Dave versus the machine under the film reviews category on Apple Podcasts and also noticed oh, wow. that your hosting provider integrates seamlessly with my company. So I thought I'd reach out to you. So Dave, this is, this is remarkable. He actually gave us some of these stats that I thought we could maybe, you know, do okay. something with yeah, uh, potentially, yeah, yeah. but it I says like, like stats. here's some example data that we collected. Your main audience is female. They own, they own and live in a house that is 1,200 plus square feet and was built. What? That's us. And was built after 1990. <laughs> what? Okay. By the yeah. way, this is complete bullshit because you can't find out that information from stats. But no. <clears throat> anyways, so but yeah. th- this is totally legit information he's giving to us. This is great <laughs> that he can go through the interweb. It's a deep algorithm. Also, yeah. they have two or more cars 
in their household, oh, wow. and they have a medium level of tech savviness. Perfect for us. Wow. We need that medium level or higher of tech savviness to listen to podcasts. Well, I'm just more interested in people who own three cars or at least two yeah, and a half. Two of them. or more, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. They have two or they also have two or more children. So, oh wow! Thanks everyone for listening to us out there. Uh, we love our female audience with their three cars and four children uh, in their so, 1,200 square foot house. The moms like us. I uh-huh, like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, what's what's this guy's name? Robot? This is Christian. Thank you, Bot Christian, mm-hmm. for that uh, deep and rich information we just received. Stop making fun of my son. Well, there's there's two things I can think of. One, if you hit all of these metrics, please reach out to us and tell us more about you, because this is amazing <laughs> if they nailed you it's that so much. so specific. Two, mm. if you think you are literally the exact opposite of this, also reach out and let us know and be like, <laughs> I'm on the outside of this you know, algorithm. You know what's really scary, though? Even though... Female's clearly not real. No. Is that uh, Facebook and Google do know you that well. Mm-hmm. Podcasting, not so much just based on the old technology it's built on top of, but that's for another day. Which is why Kyle's so focused on it, I guess. <laughs> Living in the past. Living in the RSS. past. RSS. Does anybody even know what RSS no. stands for? Really simple no. syndication, man. Really simple Jesus syndication. Jesus Christ. Okay. You've just shamed yourself. Dave, um, because this is the first episode of our new season, I thought it would be good just to, you know, lay the table out here just a bit and get a good understanding of like where we're coming from for the year 2018, but also kind of what's happening in the world at this point. Like before this, I guess our newest season, as far as like the film year we were talking about was 1999. But a lot of stuff has happened in 19 years since 1999 up until now. But before we get into that, like just your 2018, if you can cast your mind back, what was your 2018 like? Do you remember? (laughs) I don't know. 2018. I'm pretty confident. I didn't double check this. I'm pretty confident that is the year you and I met. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's the year... Uh, I built that magazine, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't 2017. That's why I couldn't remember if it was end of 2017. Oh, it'll or- be on Instagram, but I don't use it anymore. 2018. 2018 also was the year I had my first seizure, mm-hmm. but that was at the end of the year. 2018 was good as if we had looked ahead in film, it was a good year in film. I was very focused on restarting my life. So I don't remember much about contextual reality as far as global politics. Well, when did you move to Calgary? 2012. Okay, so you've been here for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I lost my corporate job in 2017 and 2018 was sort of this, I was living in this haze. I had the severance package and we were just running around and meeting people and doing art and putting on events. And I think 2018, I think the art showing at the coffee start in 2017, you and I met in 2018 and we put on so many events we did. It was fun, man. We did a lot of stuff. Yeah, we were running to, around. To, to set it up, like in October of 2017 is when I launched my company. So Media I lab, was yeah. in this one co-working space downtown. I was setting up the studio had a space. Nice studio. Yeah. Yeah. That all went to shit very soon after that. But all still, right, we're we're still in 2017. You don't have to be such a sad sack. I know. We're still. We're, we're still like exuberant here in yeah. 2018 and ready to take on the world. You had like the cheeriest assistant of all time. Yes. You know, Matt Mortz running around and just uplifting everybody's I know, spirits. It's great. Uh. But as a, a massive movie fan, because I was so kind of focused on, I want to get this business up and running and started, I wasn't watching a lot of movies in 2018. Dave, you know, you, you like I've been cataloging my movie watching on Letterboxd from 
since 2013. So I actually have okay. real stats of, of what was going on. So just to put it into perspective, uh, do you want to take a guess of how many films I watched just last year in the year 2022? How many movies oh, I fuck, watched? I don't know. 300? Oh, God, Dave. You're so <laughs> cute. This is amazing. No, this includes short films. So okay. put a little asterisk next to this. I watched 515. Yeah, that's too many. It's too many. Yeah. If you had to guess, just based on that statistic, because that's pretty similar in 2021 as well. How many do you think I watched in 2018? 150. I watched 70. 70 is low for you. Pretty yeah. low. So I was watching not even two a week, right? Like that's Not even two a week. <laughs> not even two a week, Dave. <laughs> you know what's interesting about 2018? I mean, I think I was already not going to theaters because we had a son, but Emerson was still going to bed pretty early. I think I still watched a lot of films in 2018. I obviously am not a, a nerd like you and logged them all mm-hmm. out there. I think they're all just blockbuster movies though. I don't think I watched a lot of weird stuff. I guess we'll find I out. I don't know. For, from basically 20... Yeah, so from 2006 until easily 2015, easily I was watching a movie a week in theaters. Slowed a little bit down again as I was getting, gearing up to start this company and build that out and stuff. It just like that was on the back burner. That's not what I was focused on. So definitely crashed. Nowadays, I would still say like I probably... You watch a movie a day. Yes. I, I, that's, not, that's not an over-exaggeration. I'm just trying to think if I watch... I probably would average a movie every other week now, depending on what time of year it is. Oh, you're talking about theater? <laughs> theater. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, but I mean, you're watching a minimum movie a night. Why, why I think that is important, though, is just like the films of 2018. There's definitely some big ones here that I watched in that year, and I'll mention okay. them when I get there. The vast majority of the ones that I've already seen probably came later. So the next year or two oh, years so after. True. So I wasn't yeah. actually seeing these in 2018, except for... Um, a few of them, which we will get to eventually, but no, that's fair. Yeah, I, I could. This movie we're about to uh, talk about, I didn't watch that in the theater. We watched that on streaming mm-hmm. many years after during COVID. So yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I, I understand the point you're driving at. I don't think it matters that much anymore because no, but I mean, I feel the culture of theater viewing has uh, devolved maybe. a lot. So. I do still will push back. I think it is a fundamentally different experience to watch a movie oh, in a theater course. than in the yeah, yeah, in yeah. home. And I sometimes wonder, like. In both ways, like, did you like this more because you did see it in the theater versus like, did you like this less because you watched it at home and had to contend with like traffic going by, a kid interrupting you every five minutes? Like, there I is think differences. Uh, we experience movies the inverse way. Like, for example, if I had paid 16 bucks plus, you know, accoutrement to watch Thor, Love and Thunder, maybe I would have been disappointed, but we watched it for, not for free, but we watched it at Disney Plus at home and Helen and I love that movie. So I think like- You're wrong, but works, still, yes. It, no, it works both ways, right? Mm-hmm. And we'll find out this year. We may not always agree on on the films. Like, if I had spent money, like we watched Green Knight, you and I, mm-hmm. uh, in our famous diarrhea story. <laughs> if we watched that at home, like in a indie sense, like on a computer by ourselves, would we have been more enamored by the poetry? Probably, it's possible. I, I have no idea. But Dune, I wish I'd saw it in the theater. I've seen it twice on my computer with my Wait, head. Stop, 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 stop. You did see it in the theater with me. Oh, yeah. We did watch it in the theater. But like, you know, things like that, it's pretty interesting. I don't know. I uh, I agree with you. Like, I didn't see Top Gun sure. in the theater. I've seen it twice at my house because yeah. I bought it. Yeah. Because so, you are an old man. Yes, of course. Am I, yeah. Am I missing out on going deaf and blind in a pitch black theater? Yes. I don't know. I feel like mediums changed a lot. I, yeah. I, you know, I mean, 
I understand that I do have a little bit of a romanticism for the movie theater experience, and I hear all the criticisms of it, and I even agree with some of them. I just know that I'm terrible at paying attention. The, the theater forces me not to look at my phone because I will not pull oh. it out. I will not well. pull it out. And at my house, I, it's like I have no problem. Like, oh, I guess I have to do this thing. And it takes me three yeah. hours to watch an hour and a half movie because I'm constantly doing other stuff. That's your problem. You know, I think that's, an, again, another problem with modern culture is that we are a distraction culture. Mm-hmm. And I get very upset at um, Emerson and my wife when we sit down to watch any film Because they're not fucking watching it, Mm -hmm. right? They've got two or three other screens on at the same time. And I think it's crazy. But this is also why, you know, spoiler, Kyle knows this. I can't listen to podcasts. This idea that like, oh, well, I'm washing the dishes and I'm listening to a story. I'm like, fuck off. When I watch the dishes, I just wash the dishes because I can only focus on one thing at a time. stone cold silence. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, even when there's music in the background, I'm not sitting there like basking the lyrical prose of mm-hmm. fucking Bob Dylan while I'm cooking. <laughs> Who gives a shit? Well, should be, Dave. Yeah. If there's a melody, great. If there isn't, great. Because what I'm trying to do is, you know, cook or clean mm-hmm. or do something. So I think you're the you know, I think one I'm on an that, outlier. But, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm an outlier that way. But I, again, this is why the media, the medium form of filmmaking is sort of cannibalizing itself. It's a weird thing right now. If you're a director and you've got to tell a story, but you also are aware that your audience has zero attention span. (laughs) Well, I mean, this is- Who are you telling stories to? Let's get into this a little bit, because even taking it, keeping it in the year 2018, in my opinion, I think- the bigger the biggest blockbusters are teaching are teaching audiences to be a little bit stupid and i know that's being being mean we have to reiterate what's going on every few minutes it has to be big bombastic here's a joke just to keep you interested it's always the flashing thing it's the youtube uh video mentality right there has to be something up going on every three seconds or you're going to lose people's interest um simultaneously it's like the thing in the background is also this call out. So you have to watch this video over here so you can learn about like oh, the setup for like the side quill and the sequel and the prequel and all this kind of stuff. Every other video is an Easter egg video. Like fuck off, who cares? Which yeah. is in part, not to make this a James Cameron thing again, I think in part where there's some pushback on Avatar, because James Cameron doesn't care about that shit. It's like, this is the movie, care about the movie. I'm not putting in Easter eggs for three sequels from now that all the nerds know about already. Arnold's not going to be in a closet. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so to lay the groundwork here, the big news stories, I think, from 1999 up until 2018, of course, the big one, we have 9-11, War in the Middle mm-hmm. East, expansion of the internet, YouTube, social media, smartphones, and other smart devices, China rising as a global superpower, the global recession of 2009, deepening divisions between right and left globally, and then the election of Donald Trump in 2016. Those are kind of your huge, big stories. I mean, I'm missing some other things in there, but I would say that those are the big things I think people are contending with as we come into January of 2018. Okay. Did you know that I dated Y2K program for a while? And you would add... No, it's always hard. One wants to both simplify and be wary of oversimplification. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if I think about what is going to inform art discussion, you know, when we were working on that magazine, the podcast and the shows, yeah, these are impactful. Like we put on women in women, uh, female filmmakers panel discussion, you Mm -hmm. know, that's going to be influenced by this, this uh, already a push, you know, Me Too hasn't happened yet, but we're keenly Uh, aware. It actually has. 2018? 
2017 and into 2018, Me Too is 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 bubbling up because yeah. uh, Harvey Weinstein is being taken down, accused at that yeah. point. Yeah, so that is going to play an influence. Uh, why are we so keenly aware that women are underrepresented? I mean, we did the I did the interview with Anna Cooley, and she brought it up a lot, which is I think what spurred us to focus on that a little bit. Mm. But yeah, that general awareness that uh, things aren't fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we talked about 1999, how it seems like this pink cloud peak of American civilization, even though it's rotting underneath. Well, 9-11 blows it up. Talking about women filmmakers, it's almost too bad because the crest for like really dynamic, like interesting women voices in film, 2019 would be a much better year to talk about because there's so many. There's so many that come out in 2019. And here there's a couple we'll get into, but it, it had, the watershed has not fully kind of moved in that direction to allow those opportunities to happen. That just means it is, the tide is already going. We always look at the end result as though that's the only thing that matters. But we mm-hmm. have, you know, as we saw in 1971, we've got like 50 plus years of a rising tide. It just takes so fucking long for it to crest. You could also argue, sadly, that even though that narrative pushed in 2019 through COVID, uh, it's not like it's not like female directors are prized, you know, or given big budgets yet. Well, still, a couple of them are, though. We have Gina uh, Price Bythewaite, who's doing The Woman King, to great reviews right? and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, it's. Last Gre- year, Greta right? Gerwig is bringing out the Barbie movie this year, which is a big deal for but her. She was so. 2018. She's uh, I don't know Francis has doing Lady Bird. <laughs> Lady she, Bird. Right. So you know she's still getting less than a million bucks or sure. whatever the budget of that is. So it's just interesting. You know, it's it's happening. It's kind of like how I get upset that I'm always just before things explode. Right. I, mm-hmm. we, we do the female filmmakers panel, but it's the year after that they get uh, national recognition. Yeah. Maybe we would have done better. You know, I put fucking QR codes on art and nobody knew how to use them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. now we use QR codes everywhere. You know, like... Yeah, I think it's 2020 that uh, the there's three women directors nominated for Best Director. For, so That's like, right. It's, it's huge. Chloe, yeah, yeah. And then she made Eternal, so fuck. I know. What do? Really, really bad movie. But um, um, anyway, at, so... At any rate, it's interesting. We're just part of the tide, Kyle. The three big, I would say, like media stories, and one I just thought of, the other two I had written down before, but I would say like there's the complete and utter dominance of the superhero film. Oh yeah, MC is at its peak here. That's yep. peak, but even DC is in there. Like I think of the is ten that... highest grossing movies, five of them are superhero films from this year 2018? alone. Twenty eighteen? In twenty eighteen. What's DC put out this year? Aquaman. Oh, and, Aquaman. Garbage. Uh, something else that I'm now blanking on. And it doesn't matter. It's, it, but superhero films are the are the biggest thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the top yeah. two, Black Panther and Avengers, Infinity are the two like hu- yeah. biggest grossing films of, of the year. Second, Netflix, of course, going online, becoming this dominant force and like brand awareness and then making every other media company thinking oh we need a streaming service as well like that has happened yeah, that over the last few yet. years and uh but netflix is still kind of like number one in 2018 disney plus has not happened yet prime's garbage yeah. i don't think they exist actually does anybody exist online yet in 2018 i think it's just netflix i can't remember i think prime might have just launched but definitely netflix is still kind of holding strong they have everything yeah. I mean, this is House of Cards era. House of Cards Pre- era. Right? Uh, Orange is a New Black. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Uh, they have all the Marvel films still. So, like, they, yeah. that they're the one that Disney is dealing with. Uh, but this actually leads right into the third one I had just thought of. 
it is the golden age of television. People are constantly talking about this. Like there, we have um, Game of Thrones Sex on vampires. there, and like all yeah. this other stuff. Sex dragons. <laughs> HBO. HBO's destroyed television. The best it, thing now it's just to, pornography. Yeah. You know that's I don't know. I, I think you and I have very different ideas on what pornography actually is. But uh, regardless, I think people. Uh, is there a TV show? Where they don't have full frontal nudity. Abbott Elementary, and it's amazing, and everyone should watch <laughs> <Yet>. it. <laughs> until like, uh, uh, until like Fresh Prince, it's rebooted into a hard-hitting a crime drama. <laughs> uh, all I'm saying is, I think the the general public is under the belief that the best type of content is the binge watch a bunch mm -hmm. of television yes. content. So. Yes. There's an irony there, isn't there? Short attention spans, but we also want to spend 16 hours I know. in front of this the is what TV. I mean. Yeah. It, it, it does seem to be this weird paradox that people would prefer. I want to watch 10 episodes of this TV show, but I can't sit mm -hmm. down and watch a, t a two hour long film. And I don't really understand that. And especially when like, I mean, I know this isn't 2018, but the, the latest season of um, Stranger Things, two episodes were an hour and a half. And the final episode was two hours and 20 minutes. So I'm just like, oh, really? these are movies. These are movies. For, that you're when's the first season? Is that 2018 too? Season one, Stranger mm, 2017, Things? 2017, 2018, somewhere around there. Yeah. At any rate. So, the, Dave, let's get into talking about this favorite movie here. Um, there's a few people I think we should just briefly go through and like our history with them before we're talking about the film. So, we have the three main leads, right? We have Olivia Coleman, Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz. Oh, awesome. So, yeah. we've talked about Rachel Weisz a little bit in our like Mummy episode way, way yeah. back in our first season. But anything you want to say about Olivia Coleman, Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz? I don't know. I love all of them. Mm -hmm. I, I love her Coleman's fun because she's like a late bloomer. My first memory of her is Hot This Fuzz. is the movie I rem first remember her in, even though I had seen movies that she was in before this. Right, right, right. Yes. So, yeah, my first awareness of her is Hot Fuzz because I thought she's hilarious. Mm -hmm, like, she stands mm -hmm. out even when I watched Hot Fuzz. Um, and then I tried to watch that British detective show. I think it was on Netflix, Broadchurch or Broadchurch, whatever. Yeah. And she's good in it, but I couldn't get into the the, the tone of that show do you watch the crown because she's in the crown i didn't watch the crown of course uh because why would i watch the crown i think i watched this film because she won an oscar for it i didn't sure. watch this in its lead up and emma stone uh, you know she's great same thing you know it's my first she, she was just going to be a star because you know you watched uh, super bad and she just stands out even though the movie's supposed to be about right. uh, jonah hill and whatever but she, she's she good but um Easy A is the one that fully cemented. No, you know, yeah, she gets, but that's what I'm just saying as far as having transcendent talent or charisma sure. or screen presence. Like we talk about movie stars, TV stars, you get a bit part as like a manic, cool girl, whatever, in a gross out comedy. But when she's on the screen, you're like, well, she's going to get another movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, we right? keep coming back to that. There's some people who just have that it factor and Emma Stone kind of just does have that it factor she, for me. She's great too, because she does everything. Drama, comedy. She's mm -hmm. so self-aware. And then I did a brief look up at her because there's no controversy, but she's also, you know, like the De Niro thing. She doesn't want a public persona. She doesn't want to be mm -hmm. an Instagram model. She just wants to be an actress, which I think is refreshing. So I like her a lot. Olivia Coleman, I will say what's, what's fascinating about her, this is a bit of a surprising Oscar win. From this point on, she's kind of like the new Judy Dench is what I frame it, who mm -hmm. just gets nominated <laughs> uh, no. every year for it's like, well, you were in a movie, so we'll put you in as like the fifth nominee in, in this Meryl support. Meryl Streeping it a bit. Yeah. It's sort of the Meryl Streep thing, I guess, but um, 
don't know. Meryl Streep has just a different persona. So that's why I say the Judy Dench. You got like seven nominations. Well, I'm just saying, like the last five nominations for Meryl Streep, we could put a question mark. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, Rachel Weisz doesn't show up in a lot of things, I don't feel like. But I, she's, she, I always like it when she shows up. Yeah, she reminds me a little bit. Like, it's like Jennifer Connelly, too. There's just something, every time they appear, they're so regal and they're like great actresses. But they aren't interested in churning out six movies a year. So mm -hmm. I don't know if that's uh, an artist, you know, thing or if they're just not cast because they are pretty stern looking older women now. I have no idea. You know, there's not a lot of good parts for intelligent I mean, she's women. She's looking pretty still, good for right? 50 years old. Can I just say no, that? No, I'm just saying, you know, like if you look at what a popular film is and what they cast, it's, it's, there's still quite a lot of male gaze. So sure. It's just interesting. Um, I love it. I I think all three of them are amazing. Yeah, great. And, and they're great in this, as we'll find out. Because I watched this in the lead up to the Academy Awards, where I try and watch at least all the Best Picture nominees. So right. um, I would have watched this early t t 2019. 2019. So I'm, I think I looked it up here just a couple of days ago. So it's like February something of 2019 is when I first watched this. Uh, do you have any relationship with Yorgos Alanthimos, the director? Yeah, I watched The Lobster. Oh, you did see The Lobster. For some reason, yeah, I think yeah. you thought you had not seen that movie. No, no, I've seen The Lobster. I was excited because uh, there's so much hype. And I actually, you know, now after uh, In Bruges, became a big Colin Farrell defender. He's so good in that movie. I, I love The Lobster. I think it's a good movie. Well, the, here's the thing. Like, I, I felt disappointed by The Lobster because I thought it was really well executed, I think. Colin Farrell and Rachel Weisz are so good in it, but it gets just so weird and abstract. By the end, I just, I was like, I don't know why I want to keep watching this. It gets fucking strange. Yeah, that, 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 is a, that is a thing with Lanthimos. Uh, even in this film, it ends, I think, in really a weird way. <laughs> I don't know. This one's pretty rare. We'll talk about it. I, I think this one's quite good uh, and mm -hmm. much more true to a narrative rather than absolute abstraction. Like, what, what is the end of the lobster when he's in the diner? I, I don't know. I don't know what's happened. I've completely lost my mind at that point. So. I, I will say, just with your Colin Farrell love, you really do need to watch The Banshees of Inishirin. I know. It's not, it like keeps coming up on my wish list. I just need time. Simultaneously, the saddest and funniest movie I watched <laughs> last year. There's some really <laughs> well, funny things that happened in that movie, but it's pretty bleak by the end. Basically in Bruges. Yeah. yeah. It only slightly has less killing in it. Let's do this. I'm excited to jump into this, talk a little bit more about uh, some 17th century shenanigans that are happening at an English court. It's like loosely based on a real story. It is a real story, yes. Um, yeah. We'll talk about that a little bit too. But uh, we and Dave are going to take a break. We're going to go thank some sponsors. And then when we come back, we'll be talking a little bit more about the favorite. How many rabbits do you think is too many rabbits, Dave? We, we had a friend who had... Uh, pet rabbits when we were young, Helen and I, and they're pretty adorable. Mm -hmm. But rabbits shit everywhere. Yeah. So there are pellets they squeal everywhere sometimes. they walk. Yeah. But the domesticated ones, not these jackrabbits, they just stay fluffy and they just they just lay there waiting for you to pick up. So it's kind of cute, and they don't smell like no. uh, some other rodents do. So I don't trust them. <laughs> Are their eyes even beady? They're more like beady eyes. Sometimes balls. they have red eyes. Did you ever read this? This is such a core memory. Banicula. Have you that book? Okay. No. It was a, about a vampire bunny. <laughs> it was made for no. for like uh, middle school so Monty readers. Python. Okay. Um, but so I want to watch too much Holy Grail. Do you know why the rabbit's eyes are nearly spherical? Why? 
they have nearly a 360 degree field of vision. Well, Kyle Dave versus the Machine is a proud member <laughs> is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta based businesses and organizations. Uh, this week, I get to tell you about StoryHive, specifically the anniversary documentary edition, calling all new and emerging content creators in BC and Alberta. In case you haven't heard of StoryHive, they've been supporting storytellers in Western Canada since 2013. This year, they're celebrating their 10th anniversary with the biggest edition yet. The StoryHive Anniversary Documentary Edition is funding 80 short documentaries on any local story you are passionate about. You could get $20,000 in production funding, training and mentorship and distribution on TELUS Optic TV and Stream Plus. If you live in BC, Alberta, and you have an idea for a short documentary, now is the time to send your pitch. You can send in applications by February 28th at storyhive.com slash apply. Your story, your narrative, which I believe is like every politician. Our second sponsor is Kyle's electricity provider, mm -hmm. Park Power. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet electricity and natural gas from. If you choose Park Power, you are choosing a positive local business. Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. If you want to learn more, head to parkpower.ca. Okay, Dave, we have sat down and watched this movie. Let's say you know, you're sitting at your house and... Uh, someone Just rings a doorbell some tea and crumpets eating some tea yeah. and crumpets and then puking into an urn and then someone rings your bell and is like hey i'm like this long lost cousin you didn't Chamber know bond. about and don't remember mm, yes. but i'm here to serve you also i have this copy of the favorite on dvd what would say blu-ray on uh, on a collector's 4k blu-ray ultra edition <laughs> when they ask you what, what what's it about so how would you describe the plot of the favorite two women vie for the attention of Queen Anne, um, and they'll stop at nothing to become her favorite. There is some lesbianic advances that happen in this movie. They stop at nothing. Now, I will say that the, the, the shell of this movie is based on historical truth. Um, there is, of course, some flexing of what actually happened here Yeah, and the there. narrative isn't, but yes. Characters are real. The characters are they real. They did vie for the Queen's attention. Yes. She did have 17 uh, miscarriages, just fucking depressing. And mm -hmm. Abigail won. Other than that, I think the rest of it's total fabrication for fun. But, yeah, uh, and, and the, the dialogue, of course, is also very modernized. Like, that yeah, is yeah. not what they said. Which I, yeah, I, I don't know if this was the first one to do this, but it's definitely something that more historical fiction has started to do, which is, like, still have, like, the pomp and circumstance, but have people talk as if they're in, like, a modern-day setting. Well, it's, I don't know. This one's great. It's not like they come out in wigs and they're like yo homie what's happened like they're that is they're what still... dickinson does by the way if you've ever watched that apple tv plus show it's like trying to modernize the context of how they speak but still using the temper and tone sure. of a formal british sort of well like our stereotype of a british period piece yeah. so i will say that a lot of the research i guess that went into this movie it actually is a fascinating production history i have found out this week but the sarah so the the rachel vice character is uh related to winston churchill 
Mm. And so she's a Churchill. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So Winston Churchill wrote about this in his like four um, volume biography that he wrote about himself and has a lot of detail about what was going on in the court at that time as told to him by Sarah. So of course it's a filtered through a bunch of different things. So sounds like a great read if you really need to fall asleep. Anyways, I just thought that was fascinating of, you know, how incestuous the, the UK royals and well, uh, aristocracy oh, he, are. He talks about the sex. I heard, I thought the sex was no, I don't, sorry, no, 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 I'm just oh, saying like uh, incestuous like, as in they keep the power within their families. Yeah. Well, that's not just the UK royals. That's just royal culture so dave what were your thoughts on this movie yeah i love this movie i think that this is my second time watching it same with me i think that not only the performances are outstanding from the entire cast the satirical absurdism of what you know aristocratic life is is a fucking hilarious but i love also the drama and torment of the characters involved and i think I caught on more about the miscarriages and the queen's sort of grief. Yeah, I think the first time I watched it, I thought she was just playing a fool. But rather, mm. the second time I watched it this time, I realized she, when she's competent, she's aware of her standing, but she's so overcome with the fact that she has no love in her life. Yeah. Everything is taken away that it becomes so much more tragic and i see now and appreciate now much you know her performance there's a scene uh, when olivia coleman like at the uh, at the ball and rachel weiss <laughs> and uh, who's she dancing with they're like doing yeah. this ridiculous dance. ridiculous uh, dance and olivia coleman it struck me you know she goes from glee to absolute uh, crushing trauma was just just the change in her expression in that slow shot of her face. And I was like, I understand that a lot more this time than I did the first time I watched it. So I think top down, this is, uh, I mean, I think it's a masterpiece. Uh, I love how he uses weird camera works, fisheye lenses. And mm. I was thinking too, like uh, forced perspective. So, you know, you look at a lot of medieval paintings, they didn't really, they didn't have perspective figured out yet. So sure. yeah. if you have a floor and a ceiling coming, it looks like a trapezoid. And so he's trying to emulate that, I think, with a lot of weird rectilinear wide lenses. So there's like stuff I picked up this time that I really appreciated in the crafting of it. You know, they race ducks. Nicholas Holt is a fop. It's hilarious. I mean, Nicholas Holt cracks me up this entire movie. (laughs) There's there's no wonder why he goes and plays a very similar character with a bit more menace in the show The Great, which is on um, Amazon Prime, Mm -hmm. where he's playing very similar character (laughs) to what he's doing in here. But he's so good at at being crazy being well you said the fop but like that's that's the only word i can think of it it's being this like this totally like ridiculous man while trying to be serious and it's just so funny to me he he actually if you've watched a a movie that came out last year called the menu yeah i just watched it oh you did watch it um what were your Mm -hmm. thoughts on the menu just very briefly i think it starts off so strongly and it ends really badly yeah (laughs) yeah i thought the same thing i felt so disappointed so good nicholas holt's so good at the beginning he's so good at the setup and even his like ultimate end i thought was done fairly well but like he's great in it but the story doesn't make there's no story at the end yeah Yeah, there's no story so much anyways um we're on the outside by the way of thinking that everyone else loves that movie and i was like no no the second half is so much worse than what the first half promises to be well it just the way it sets up i wanted a real reason for them to be in that room Mm -hmm. and helen kept asking like why why is the cooking staff involved in this like to that level and they don't explain it so now we're ruining it but it, it was very disappointing at the end but i Gave it a reasonable score because everybody's good in it. <laughs> yeah, no, like everyone's good at the performance. It's like, There's, anyways, well, 
This is not talking about the menu, although I have some similar feelings to this movie, where it's like, I definitely like the first half more than I enjoy the second half. I do think, oh, I love- for me, the the it kind of peters out n- near the middle section and gets um, bogged down with a little few like plot digressions I just don't find as interesting. I do agree with the, the, the performances. Across the board, those three, the three main actresses, are so good that it's like, whatever, I'm still enjoying all three of these people acting across well, from me, each like, other. What- yeah, what, uh, what is the what is the crux? Where does it fall? I think apart it's as soon as uh, Rachel Vice gets dragged off by the horse, and then she's over in the broth and this this thing, and um, I don't know, all all that stuff grinds the momentum to a halt. Where it's like we're just reiterating the same point. It feels like over and over and over again. That's to me. I, I thought that yeah, the yeah, first yeah. time I watched it, and I thought felt it this time here too. Which like even though I'm enjoying the performances, I don't feel like there's this narrative progression that's happening anymore. Um, which would be fine if I thought that it was like as funny or as like super tragic or something. And we don't get there until like the final 15 minutes where it finally feels like we're, we've gotten to the point that the movie is trying to communicate. That's interesting. I asked because over the last couple of years, you know, we make fun of each other. It's weird how like you'll watch the lobster and call it the best. And you'll think this one peters out where Mm -hmm. the lobster doesn't make any fucking sense from the get-go, right? We watch the menu and we'll agree that the story, there's it loses any story mm-hmm. at the midpoint, so it becomes hard to watch by the end. But then for this film, for me, you know, the idea of the comeuppance, not as though one was a protagonist, but rather that both of these conniving women uh, were willing to give up everything to attain whatever their goal is, power or, oh, it's power. or acceptance. It's for sure power. Well, Emma Stone's character doesn't want to control the court. She wants to survive and thrive. Right. Well, th- 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 this is what I figured, I, I don't know, this is what I keyed in on this time, which I don't know if I fully appreciated the first time that I watched it. I really feel bad for Olivia Coleman's Queen Anne. Like, I do. Um, of course. And whether she should be or not in like the actual historical context, I don't know. But inside of this film, what it felt like to me, I feel like there's like, yeah, these two options in life that she's choosing between. Between a person that will not lie, but treats her like a child, and another who will lie, but allows her to feel powerful. I think those are the two things that she's going. So it all has to do with power. In the first one with Rachel Weisz's character... It's Rachel Weisz who has all the power in that. She treats her like a she little kid. She has all the political power, she, has, yeah. she pulls all the strings. With the Emma Stone character, the queen gets to now feel powerful, but perhaps at the cost of the court's respect. Uh, I, I don't know. There, 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 there seems to be like this, this two thing. Because I, I think it shows very clearly that Emma Stone is, is not the right choice. <laughs> Neither of them are the right choice. I'm the right choice. The setup is that Rachel Weisz... And I think this is historically true. The Sarah character is a very battle-tested political sure. ingenuity. No, like she's just like a, she held actual power in the court by manipulating the queen. And I yes. think that, but um, I don't think Emerson understands how to manipulate. Emerson doesn't properly. want that. She doesn't want to rule the government. But Rachel Weisz's character is destroying England. Right, mm-hmm. she's trying to fund a war for her husband's glory and a sense of uh, a broken sense of national um, obsession. Here's the thing: I think, again, this is my own interpretation of this. Her character actually does love the queen, whereas Emma Stone doesn't. She sure, doesn't really yeah, care yeah. about the queen but at they're all. Child, they're supposed to be childhood friends, right? Yeah. And I think that's the yeah, fascinating allegedly. thing and the magic trick that this movie does, you know, in a, in a way, which is when the movie starts. I think we are meant to sort of be cheering on the emma stone character sure and then by the midpoint we're like oh actually i don't know if 
I want to be cheering for her anymore. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, but I, I didn't feel like, you know, maybe this is the hopeless romantic in you. I, I don't think that you're supposed to cheer for either of them. Mm. I think they're both disgusting. And the whole point at the end of the film for me, and this is why I like it so much, is that they both end up being the thing that they hate the most because they played this political game. It's not like Rachel Weisz wins or Emma Stone wins, right? Emma Stone has that big uh, thing about how she doesn't want to end up as this, like basically a sex toy for some man, you know, mm -hmm. a wench or a whore, and she ends up being that, you know, for her so-called right. freedom. The last scene is her essentially being a prostitute to the queen. And Rachel Weisz doesn't want to lose any power or standing in the court, but all of her manipulations ends up with her getting kicked out and uh, of the country and basically losing her status at the court. You know, it becomes more of a treatise of this human nature of, uh, you know, corrupting oneself for mm. one's own aims and losing their sense of value. And uh, I think it's interesting, you know, even at the get-go, I'm not cheering Emma Stone on because I think she's a good person. She's clearly portrayed as a conniving, manipulative thing. Half Halfway through, I started thinking, maybe she's lying about being this woman's cousin. Like, I don't know. I have always thought that. I mean, I know in the in reality they were. I think definitely the first time I watched it, and even this time, it's like I don't know if she's telling the truth. I, I yeah. really don't know if she's telling the truth. I love that. And I love uh, any discussion about sort of survivor mentality. I think that especially in American culture, we believe in this idea of good and bad, and that there's this absolute idea of the right way to do something, and this absolute idea of the wrong way to do something. But that's absolutely wrong. And in every moment you have to make a decision, uh, you have to decide not on good and evil, but whether you, and to what level you're willing to compromise yourself for yeah. some value, right? The other thing, this is going to be me being Dave in the year 1971, because I hated, hated, hated from even the first time I watched this movie, the way that the movie looks. I think it looks oh, bad. I love the way a movie looks. I think really? it looks bad. And it's something it's I just can't get over. I think that things Why? are overblown. I think the highlights are blown out way too much. I hate when they switch over to the GoPro footage because that's what they're using to get those super uh, fisheye lenses. Yeah, yeah. I think I would be f more okay with it if they had picked one type of camera and filmed the whole thing in that style. But they don't. They keep flipping back and forth to like extreme fisheye to wide angle lens to like supreme wide angle. And it just... I, I, for whatever reason, it bugs me every time. I just don't like the way that this film looks. I realize I'm on the outside of this position because everyone talks about how great the cinematography is in this movie, and I can't stand it. I cannot stand looking yeah, at it. It's interesting that it stands out. But, like, you know, you applaud McCabe and Miss, Mrs. Miller for being impossible to see anything, and you'll talk about. Uh, I don't think it's impossible to see anything, but okay. No, but this is the thing, right? It's like, I think there's a narrative. Maybe you're expecting a period piece to be very formal and strictly structured. Well, I was thinking about this because I, I watched for the very first time last year, Barry Lyndon, which is the Stanley Kubrick film period piece. And he went to, <laughs> granted, he went to NASA and got their lenses that they were using in telescopes to film this thing because he wasn't using any lighting so he had to get as much light into the camera as he possibly could or also been just no one could see anything but every frame looks like a renaissance painting in that yeah. movie like it's so gorgeous to look at i'm not saying that i want that no, in this you film. literally said it just now by <laughs> but bringing he's using, up you know, what i'm saying is that he's using super wide angle lenses in that movie too no, so it's I'm, not about I don't that. Have a it's about your expectation of what yeah. the renaissance looks like maybe but i think it's it's more but than this that this is it's a like, satire right Yes, I would agree with that. But I think mm. if, again, if there's like, we're going to make this look 
we're going to update this. We're going to make this look like a, a skateboarding video for the entire runtime. I'd be a little bit more okay with that than it switching back and forth all the time. Like it just, I don't, I just do not enjoy that. Yeah. I mean, obviously you can have your own opinion, even when you're wrong. <laughs> you know, I think this is the thing I, I'm keying in with uh, this film uh, versus the lobster, which is, I think that it is trying to push as much as possible on the creative wall. But I think maybe his feedback from the lobster is that if you cross the line into too absurd, then the popular audience just will not sit through it. Sure. Yeah. And you'll only feed into art critique. Because mm -hmm. um, this is so way better this than is, the lobster for sure. And this, I think this is him trying to tightrope that because I think he knew if he shot it just one way, it becomes boring. Like if you shoot this like a Barry Lyndon or a, I don't know, whatever, anything where you're just using static cameras and everything's uh, sitting very still and like painting like, you lose the humor in this very quickly. It, it just won't be funny. We won't see the extreme reactions. We won't be able to see their twisted, contorted faces, right? Everything will be very, very two-dimensional. Um, if you do it like a skateboarding video, nobody will take it seriously. It will look like, you know, it will literally look like an indie film, just some piece of garbage. Yeah. So I think he was just, I feel like it's trying to straddle both. And for me, it's quite successful because it shocks me. Anytime it gets too serious, we're suddenly doing mm. a pan of a hallway and you're like, this place isn't real. <laughs> um, I will say every set and costume is perfect. Like that's all like, phenomenal and great. I'm surprised you didn't like uh, throwing tomatoes at your buddy, nude buddy in <laughs> nude front buddy. of a uh, thing. So one of mine says this and every time I think about it too. It's like, is that James Corden? It's like, oh no. It, just, it takes a two seconds. It's like, is that James Corden? No, it's not. Just because he's chubby. You guys are cruel. James Corden is more evil than me. There's a few different jokes that always stand out to me. I love it when there's that that page that the queen is walking past. He's like, did you look at me? And he's like, look at me. Look at me. How dare you look at me? It's like, it's such a great venal example of, of the queen. I like how Nicholas Holt says, keep that duck away from me. <laughs> the fucking duck in general. And so I love when he pushes her down the ditch. Like when he pushes her down the ditch it's so funny i i love uh any interaction emma stone has with her suitor and soon-to-be husband oh That's my god right. she, and you see her how vicious and weird she is mm -hmm. she's just, just beating, beating the shit weapon. out of him <laughs> and she's so good at that it, it comes natural can you imagine being hired as an actress for that and they're like all right you're about to kiss him i want you to bite him on the lip well you <laughs> how do like you keep the, a straight face right it's fascinating the more racy one of like uh the, Jerking you're them gonna, off. When, jerking them off while you're like scheming. Like she's like yeah. basically like thumb of fist underneath fist. Like how am I going to get rid of this? While well, she's like jerking them off and like That's why she, she got gets his, uh, her too. idea as soon as he, you know, climaxes. Yeah. So it's, it's. But I love, it looks real, mm -hmm. right? Like it looks like she's actually doing it and that you believe that this character would do something like that. It's amazing. All right. Well, let's do some backstory here and then we can uh, wrap up uh, some of our other thoughts on the film. So this movie did open up on August 30th, 2018 at the Venice Film Festival and then went wide worldwide on November 23rd, 2018. Currently, it's rated 4.0 on Letterboxd. It has a 7.5 on IMDb, a 91 on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes from 427 critics, which is really high. That's like the highest That's I've ever seen it. a lot of people, yeah. It has a 93%. And then from you, only- the, the statistical importance of that versus some of the films we watch, we get a number out of four 20 critics. critics. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but here's the here's the the weird uh, the interesting part. 
5,000 plus users. Not many users have actually rated no. this movie. Again, because it's weird. At 70% is what it's at. Mm. So it is available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can rent it on iTunes and Google Play, and you can stream it on Disney+. Plus. Its budget was $15 million. So about a Yes Giorgio is what this was made no, for. No, with inflation, that's, that's, it's like half a Yes Giorgio. <laughs> it would go on to make $95.9 million. So a really good return on investment there. Uh, if we do adjust it for inflation, even though it's only been five years, $111 million is what it would what? make. <laughs> okay. Its plot description from IMDb is, In early 18th century England, the status quo at the court is upset when a new servant arrives and endears herself to a frail Queen Anne. Dave the gout, Wim man. The gout. Jesus. Gout is always called the rich person's disease. because the gout, There's a high prevalence of gout right now, uh, post-COVID. Have you read about that? No. Is it because people are just eating too many sweets? Diet, lack of exercise, sedentary lifestyle, mm. uh, stress. I think there's, I mean, there's obviously a strong genetic factor yeah. of who is at risk of developing gout, but... Usually you, get, you either get it from eating a lot of too much sugar or too much red meat is what I heard. Well, the thing is, if you look at, if you look at the scientific data, it actually has a lot less to do with diet than the holistic people want you to believe mm. because the uh, impact of changing your diet is like, I can't remember the percentage, it's less than 2% in terms of efficacy. But in my personal life, in the last year... I think five people I know have been uh, put on medication for gout, wow. including my brother, this guy who visited so me yesterday, wild. Helen's mom, and I'm developing signs of like sore joints and things like that. It's fascinating. It's Even like you're exercising. That's actually fascinating to me. So it's weird. Mm. It's a weird thing. Uric acid, man. Don't fuck with it. Don't. Uh, you should stop eating those raw steaks. Just drink more water. That's the problem. People don't drink water enough. Unfortunately, this movie has no tagline, so you can't. That's how you know it's good. Again. Um, actually, this is one of my favorite posters. If you actually look at the official poster, it's really great. But it just says the favorite, the three women in this really interesting pose. So it's it's a beautiful poster. This uh, stars Olivia Coleman as Queen Anne, Rachel Weisz as Lady Sarah, Emma Stone as Abigail, and Nicholas Holt as Harley. One last thing I wanted to say about Nicholas Holt. I really hope he gets cast as James Bond. That's what I want. No <laughs> but way. I don't, but Come I don't on. think he's going to be. Is that a rumor? No, I don't think so. Right now, it's Aaron Taylor Johnson is the biggest rumor who's going to get oh, it. Oh, weird. No. I don't, oh, I don't know. He's so young still. Like, you're looking. He's my age, Dave. Yeah, but he looks younger than you. Fine. Fine. <laughs> and he has muscles. No, um. That is true. But that's why I want I'm, uh, yeah, Nicholas Holt. I like him. He's great. I liked Warm Bodies a lot. Yeah. And, I'm actually uh, looking really forward, this is so stupid, to the Renfield movie, which I know is going to be dumb. I don't know what that is. Oh, it's a Dracula movie. Ah. Uh, yeah. He's basically yeah. in, uh, it's not AA, but it's for like being um, abused. So he's oh. in like the circle and everything. He's like, I'm being abused by my, my employer who is actually Dracula. So he's like, <laughs> anyways, it looks like a funny comedy horror film. So Like what we do in the shadows. Yeah. Cinematography is by a guy named Robbie Ryan, whose top four on IMDb are this movie, uh, a film called Slow West from 2015, uh, Come On, Come On from 2021, which I have seen, beautiful like black and white film with uh, Joaquin Phoenix in it. Oh, okay. And then, with the kid. Uh, yeah, I never watched kid. that yeah. film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then American Honey from 2016, which has been on my to-watch list for like years, and I still have not. So I want to talk to you about the long road to getting a film made, because Deborah Davis- Deborah Davis was a lawyer and a journalist in Britain and writes the first draft of this screenplay in, do you want to guess the year, Dave? One. Yes, the year <laughs> one. She is uh, 
she's standing beside Jesus and she's like, you know what? She is the Highlander, of course, and she decided to. <laughs> no, she writes there the first. There can be only one. She writes the first draft of the screenplay in 1998. Oh, wow. So she has no experience writing scripts. She just takes a night school class to learn to write a screenplay. This is actually the other thing I just wanted to bring up. I always assume that this was just based on a book and it's not. It's like just totally based oh. on her own research and then her making a movie. I just assumed uh, Yorgos wrote it. But she looks through history, does a bunch of research, and then submits it to some contests. The script okay. to some contests. She so she wins a bunch of prizes. Eventually, she does sell it to a producer named C.C. Dempsey, who gives it to Ed Guiney or Gwinney. I don't actually know how to say his last name. Guinea. Yeah, Guinea maybe. Who like pairs the script with Yorgos Lanthimos, who loves it and then wants to make it his next project. Why it's important that it gets to Ed Guinea. <laughs> is that he is the co-founder of Element Pictures, which is a pretty big deal uh, in the UK and Ireland. He's the one who kind of pushes through the financing because up until that point, when she first gave it to this CC Dempsey, what they were finding issues with was trying to get people to give her the money because one, there's lesbian content in this, and two, there's no male leads. So they no one wanted to fund this movie. But with Ed, he was like, I think I get this. I think that there is a market for this and people will like this. And he was basically at the forefront saying he didn't want to make another stuffy British costume drama. He wanted to make something a little bit different. Subvert it, baby. You know, like Nicholas and Alexandra. He wanted to make something vibrant and contemporary. Lanthimos thinks that this is a good enough script, but... He wants it to have a bit of polish to it. There's still some things that he thinks needs to be ironed out in the narrative. So he introduces Deborah Davis to Tony McNamara to get her uh, to put some finishing touches on it. Tony McNamara is an Australian screenwriter and playwright. He would be the one who goes on to create the TV show The Great, which stars Nicholas Holt. Oh, there's a connection. He also co-wrote Cruella, which stars Emma Stone. So he likes to work with people from this movie a lot, including his upcoming project called Poor Things, which is starring Emma Stone and Willem Dafoe and directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. So huh. they kind of continue to work with each other. At this point, like Lanthimos had been getting some good critical reception for his like first film called Dogtooth. It had mm. even been nominated for Best uh, Foreign Language Film at the Academy Awards. He's Greek, if you don't know by the name. He used to be a professional basketball player. Mm-hmm. He loves the story saw how these political maneuverings in the film affected millions of people, and yet it was this intimate portrayal. He says, quote, It was an interesting story in its own right, but you also have the opportunity to create three complex female characters, which is something you rarely see. Uh, He also mentioned in later interviews how the Me Too movement helped frame the story. Uh, He says, quote, because of the prevalent male gaze in cinema, women are portrayed as housewives, girlfriends. Our small contribution is we're just trying to show them as complex and wonderful and horrific as they are, like other human beings. So the casting and filming of this movie take quite a long time. And I couldn't find out reasons why it took so long, because the main casting is done in 2015. Coleman was always the original choice to play Queen Anne. Emma Stone comes on very shortly afterwards. And originally, Sarah was cast as Kate Winslet, who comes on to be in this film. But because it takes so long, Winslet has to drop out. They offer it to Kate Blanchett first, who turns them down, and then is finally replaced by Rachel Weisz. Three big hitters. It was yeah. going to win an award no matter what. <laughs> I agree. Um <laughs> Rachel Weisz had just worked with Lanthimos on The Lobster, so that's why he brings her in. So the cast is in place. They enter into this very bizarre rehearsal period, uh, which, one, very rarely happens for films anyways. Normally, you're hired. You just show up on set and start you know, going through the scenes. But they had three weeks 
three weeks of rehearsals so they could get like the script right under control. And they, he had them deliver lines while literally tying themselves in knots and then jumping from tile to tile in a rehearsal room. He said, like, I don't want you focusing on dialogue. I just want it to be so natural that you don't, doesn't matter what you're doing with your body. They're gearing up to make this film and then they do another one year delay. Again, don't know why they have to delay it again. So Lanthimos goes off to make this movie called The Killing of the Sacred Deer, which I have not seen, which I like too. And then they all return back in the spring of uh, 2017 to finally film this movie over 45 days. So it's a pretty quick uh, turnaround. The cinematographer, Robbie Ryan, was encouraged to use wide angle and even fish eye lenses, as well as getting fluid shots without the use of a steady cam. So all these shots are not actually put on the tripod or by the use of a steady cam, just someone holding it really, really steady. Gets released, very positive reviews. As we saw, here's a moment ago, does make money. And when the Academy Award nominations come out, it is nominated for 10 Academy Awards. This includes Best Production Design, Best Costume Design, Best Editing, Best Original Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Picture. All three women are nominated. Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz in the supporting category, with Olivia Coleman in the lead category. It only won one of those awards, which was the surprise win of the night, Olivia Coleman. Uh, not that she hadn't won like other awards, but if you looked at the prognosticators at the time, it was a two-way race of between Glenn Close and Lady Gaga, because they had basically been going back and forth with all the major awards, so they just thought it would be the same. I don't know. We'll talk about it. Wait, what was Glenn Close uh, nominated for? This movie called The Wife, which is not good. It's not a good movie. But everyone thought it was was her eighth nomination. Everyone thought this was going to be the crowning achievement. Finally, Glenn Close is going to get get a reward, and then she does not win. uh, If you watch the clip, though, you can actually tell. Like, in the room, there's, like, shocked gasps. It's, like, so funny to watch. Olivia Coleman even gets up and is like, I did not think I was winning this. Like, she was not prepared to actually give a speech. A famous speech. Where she even says, like, Glenn Close, I'm so sorry. I didn't want to meet you like this. I honestly thought this was yours tonight. That's the kind of the history of this movie. In the intervening five years, I would say it's probably kind of elevated from my small knowledge base of, like, film Twitter and other places. Seems to have elevated in estimation over time. Like, people love this movie. Like, don't get me wrong. And people constantly refer to it as a way to do a a period drama in modern days. Kind of like your distaste for its aesthetic and thinking about the rotten tomatoes user versus critics score if anybody turns this on because they think that it's going to be bridgerton they're going to fucking hate this movie right right but i think that's not that you wanted a bridgerton but that's the tone that period dramas even when they're modernized is supposed to have right horses and sex and fucking dresses i mean i love the pockets in all the women's dresses in this movie they're fucking hilarious i think because i watched the lobster and I know a little bit about what tone to expect when I came into this film. I mean, I, th- I think this movie is a home run. I, I think it's probably my, we'll see. I can't remember the total list of the movies we're going to watch this year, but it's probably my favorite. I, it's amazing to watch something cruel, dramatic, funny, and actually want to watch it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's somewhat depressing in that I am pretty much, I can pretty much call my shot and say what our number one movie of the year is going to be already without even having to do the rest of the oh. season. But um, what? It's not going to be this one for you. No, it's going to be, be Spider-Verse. I, I know that that's going to be our number one movie probably. Yeah, Spider-Verse is pretty much a perfect movie. But I, I'm going to give this a, like a basically a perfect score. I love this movie. I enjoyed it even more this time. Yeah, I'm not saying it's bad. I think it's a very solid movie. I think I would rate it even higher if I just didn't have this weird like if you could get over yourself reflex of what how the movie looks yeah 
just move on. They race ducks, which I think is hilarious. Uh, you know, like little things. I love the dance scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if that doesn't tell you what tone you're watching, I mean, that's just, that's the whole thing. There's one last line that I wrote down while I was watching this that made me laugh a lot, which is, if you do not go, I will start kicking you and I will not stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, is, I, which is great. No, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of puking in this movie. Like, a every, little bit all of three puking. of them puke yeah. at one point in the movie. Yeah, yeah. It's good. It, it doesn't hold back. But that's, I think that's something that's interesting about films like this. It can be grotesque without it needing to mm-hmm. uh, rest all of its weight on it, right? It's not a horror sure. movie. It's no, not meant no. to I think it is, is meant thrill to... you by its disgustingness. No, I think it's, it is uh... definitely meant to be a comedy. And then also has that gut punch of like, don't you feel bad for this monarch with uh, suddenly forming her like, backstory I, a little bit. She seems so... Even... She's so bedraggled by the end of this movie that it's well, you know, it's weird hard not is, to pity her a bit. Yeah, I mean, there's pity, but I, I don't even think she's the protagonist or, you know, you're not, I don't think you're supposed to feel that much empathy for her either because she's completely off her nut as well. I think that's what makes it fun to watch for me is that we see three people who are all evil in their own way. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, evil you know? is, a, is a weird way to phrase it, but definitely, yeah, I mean, I there's shades of gray in all of them. I think there's kindness that they all show. I think sure. there's terribleness yeah. that all of them show. They're all human. I mean, yeah. that's, that's what, what... Yeah, you, the quote that Lanthimos says, like, they're all human right. beings, right? Yeah. From the horrific to the great. I think it's fun. I think it's fun to watch. I think it's measured. Well, and, here's, here's yeah. my question then. I said this at the beginning, and you somewhat disagreed, but how do you read those final two minutes? And I'm talking specifically about the three intercutting like fade-ins. You have the rabbits, you have the face of Emma Stone, and you have the face of the queen. So how do you read those final couple minutes? Oh, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't read into stuff like that, unlike you. I, you know, well, I think... I mean, they're putting an image in front of you, so it has to mean something. Sure, but I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm watching it. What's striking to me just before that, of course, is we see that Emma Stone lost, anyways, became everything she didn't want to be for her name and her money. And as we see the, you know, last, let's call it a fade out, uh, we're juxtaposed between a queen who's miserable, her servant who's miserable, and the memory of 17 dead children. Hmm. I don't know. What do, you, what do you want to read into that? Well, it's, no, because I just have a very different interpretation of what that's supposed to communicate. Well, so that's interesting. You, yeah. Well, I mean, what, what do you read into that? Uh, you should buy a bunny. You should buy a bunny. No, yeah. I, I think it's like the lead up right into that scene, like right before it. So it's not like way earlier in the movie, but right before that, you see Emma Stone step on the head of a bunny. doesn't kill it, but it's like stepping on the head of the bunny and like exerting pressure. You see her true self. Yeah. Yeah. See her true self that she enjoys inflicting it. I think you're right. She, the queen invites her over, like, don't touch me. And then forces her to like invites, kneel in front of her. <laughs> commands. Yeah. And my reading of this is like those two scenes are interchangeable like uh, at any point emma stone can like break the neck of that bunny and kill it and i feel like that it's a powerful move well, she I feel- can't right she would lose everything sure but I, th- I still think that fits into my reading here where it's like i feel like emma stone has this like look on her face which is like oh my god like i have become subservient in a way that i didn't want to be and the queen is finding her power like she seems triumphant at the end she doesn't feel like she's you think uh, she's triumphant? That's what her like face her looks face like to me. Is tw- no, her face is twisted in gout, and she's miserable. But she's she smiling. She starts to smile at the end. She's not smiling. She she's uh, being she's masturbated. 
no, this is this is a weird thing. It's fascinating to try to understand how different people see visual cues, right? I mean, to me, at the end, she doesn't look happy at all. She looks fucking broken. Her face is melting from disease, and she's just ordered what she thought would be her friend to uh, to pleasure her while she holds her head down. That to me is not power. That to me is like a desperation that she's mm. absolutely abandoned. You know, if we wanted to overanalyze the uh, fade out and the amalgam, is that all three things are a picture at the end that uh, there is no winner, right? Like. Nobody's winning this. I, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of why you're so fixated on this idea of power. It's obvious, uh, I think, that power plays a big role in everybody's lives, that we want power over things. But I also think that this movie is trying to tell us that that's a failing on all accounts. That well, chasing sure. power that destroys power, everybody. I'm not saying that the power is the positive emotion in this, but that's what it feels like to me the queen's journey is. She goes from feeling powerless, even though she holds lots of power, to being someone who understands how to wield her power but is her body is failing her like she she knows she's not long for this world i don't even know how much longer she lived after the events of this movie but did she die when she was like 40 something sure Nah, it's royals though they, yeah with all of the uh incest they don't live long who she might even know that has been manipulating her but she's taking a little bit of that power back for herself in a way that yeah. she couldn't with the rachel vice character she does it with rachel vice too she commands her to push her on the stroller. She commands her to visit her in her bedchambers. It's different though, because Rachel Vice seems to hold more more, more power no, over the queen. No, different personalities because they're using their different personalities to leverage different things out of it. You mm -hmm. know, and I think that I, I don't know. I I don't I don't see it in a way that uh, anybody gained anything from it. And maybe that's the one difference is that you are looking at this as though someone has to win something. Maybe the reading at the end of the queen being happy and holding Emma Stone's head down is her triumphing over something, you know, her own demons or something, but I don't, I don't see it. I think they're all miserable. I think they're all weak. I think they're all broken. And I think that's also played out in parliament in that uh, no matter what any of them are trying to do, they actually fail at all of it. You know, they can't continue the war, they can't get any power, they can't get any respect. The parliament turns into the power of the, the idiot, yeah. <laughs> uh, the conniving Nicholas Holt character. Uh, the, everybody loses everything at the end. Even when Emma Stone gets her money, she's just a tragic alcoholic mess, you know? She, she doesn't enjoy her life. I think that's kind of a statement on class and uh, on this whole structure. They don't do the thing like in Summer Nights where we see at least the servants are happy. The servants are miserable too. Uh, and they're all playing pranks and torturing each other. So in a, in a sense, this is such a depressing, cynical movie. Sure. It's just funny. So I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I could see if you wanted that, it would be such a disappointing experience. Never mind the camera work. Well, I, I, I still don't think that's what... No. I, I, I'm, I'm rejecting that you think that that's why I'm less favorable on this movie is because you there's no clear-cut ending. It's, it's uh -huh. mostly the aesthetics and I feel it gets a little bit too bogged down in the middle of it. I also don't really care about any of the political stuff. I know that that's true for most um, of these types of movies that there has to be a little bit of political intrigue but it's like I'm so much yeah. more interested in the three women that all that other stuff is like okay I mean I like Nicholas Holt fine enough but I don't really care about what's going well, they on. they can't have I know but they can't have a relationship without it right because we don't write about people I tried to watch Les Miserables <laughs> like the Hugh Jackman one yeah 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 and it's depressing 
It is obviously shocking how they're not singers, and then Colin Wilkinson uh, shows oh up God. in his cameo, right? I know, and it's like, God, and you're you like, just blew oh shit, that's what singing. Yeah, you're like, that's what singing. It's like a right. What? How many verses? Is it. I mean, it's such a crucial part, the it father, is. but yeah. Anne Hathaway is amazing, and then I turn it off. But that's like a rare film where we want to. I mean, that's why *Lamers Are of the Book* is such yeah. a powerful cultural thing. But I mean, who else wants to hear about poor peasants? Nobody. We're done here. Well, the machine has said that we do have to wrap things up here. So let's get into the critics' choice. This is the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time this film was released. A lot now, of critics, apparently. Roger Ebert was pretty dead at this point. <laughs> and uh, Pauline Kael was super dead by this point. <laughs> so I picked... Who, who, are the, who are the current... Yeah, I, I want to get better at this, but who I picked for this time... Peter Travers? ...was Dana Stevens, who... She's okay. a great critic. I really enjoy reading You've her thoughts. you referenced her before, yeah. Um, and did write the, the biography on Buster Keaton, which I still have not read yet. And I'm going to go with A.O. Scott from the New York Times. Oh, yeah. A.O. Scott's... Although he's... Been around a long time, too. Long time. Dana Stevens, I will say, was medium on this movie. Did enjoy it, but had some misgivings. Although the intrigue swirling around the Queen's debauched inner circle lost its interest for me around the one-hour mark, the three leading ladies never did. Coleman especially delivers a titanic performance as the alternately weak-willed and indomitable Queen. She can be self-pitying and self-indulgent to the point of being repellent, but the emotionally needy and physically frail Queen Anne always somehow retains her sympathy in her flailing quest for the same things the non-royals among us spend our lives trying to find. Pleasure, security, and love. I, I actually do agree with that more that it's the queen trying to find love but doesn't know what that means because sure. she can't. I mean, there's no way she can actually right? have her loving relationship in the position she's in. That scene where she tries to grab the baby, right? Yeah. Holy shit. When she has her fit. A.O. Scott writes, uh, he loved this movie, by the way. The best and almost the most troubling thing about The Favorite is its rigorously bleak assessment of human motivations and behavior. The palace is a petri dish, a swarm with familiar pathogens of egoism, cruelty, and greed. A sentimental soul might wish for a glimpse of something else, but at the same time, it's hard to say that anything is missing from this tableau, which is also a devastating, flattering, and strangely faithful mirror. I'm the sentimental soul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I've, I listened to both, and I think it encapsulates us both very well. Yeah, yeah. that's right. I'm A.O. Scotting this thing. It's great. So, I mean, the question we normally ask each and every week is, does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? So let's ask that first. What do you think? Yeah, well, of course, both and both. I will say yes and yes as well. My other question I want to ask for this season, at least, will is do you think it's going to increase in value, decrease in value? You know how we've found films that like yeah. cratered when they were initially released and then like a decade later found their audience. Do you think there's going to be well, increased in, in, in uh, relevance or decrease? Well, it's already in well. I mean, it's already well loved. So yeah. that's a hard that's a hard way to contextualize this you know we'd have to look at a, a flop that shouldn't have flopped if we want to have yeah. a blade runner discussion for example but i think this is the kind of film that will maintain and increase its stature just because the performances are so good it stands outside of being compared to let's say a standard period drama or mm -hmm. the current uh, run of you know television shows etc in spite of your not liking the visual tone of it i think it's shot in a unique enough way that it will build, it will stand, it will stand by itself. You know, so for example, we talked about the Green Knight. I'm sure later, perhaps, although it might have been too extreme and too cartoony, the Green Knight, but things where people are trying to push the envelope for whatever reason, 
I think will garner greater praise. The only I, I, caveat to that is, as you brought up, like what 500 critics have already reviewed this, I and mean, who's left? Who's left to appraise this thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's the critical reaction is, as well as just like the broader public. I I have a feeling like that this is just going to grow in estimation. So, I mean, I don't know the sight and sound, but this is one of those movies that will find an anchor somewhere in film nerds. Yeah, I think that that's a good call here too. We'll we'll see the future of like Yorgos Lanthimos himself. I see him very closely aligned with um, Luca Guardinino. He directed uh, Call Me By Your Name and has then done the remake of Suspiria, came up with Bones and all. Like his star is a little bit on the rise and is being looked at as like this new auteur. I think with a few more like smaller hits or bigger hits that Yorgos has that he'll kind of be risen to the same level. Sure. So I I kind of put them in the same category of these new auteurs, world auteurs that are coming in and getting to do these English language films that do play to our North America centric audiences. So we think of them in higher esteem, just like a Bong Joon-ho had to make some English films to like break through. Yeah. He's definitely got a a visual language that he works with. Mm -hmm. Uh, and a character. So I have high hopes. But as we've also seen, the peaks and valleys of creative people can be short and brutal sure. too. So, you know, this is the thing about foresight. We have no idea where any of these people will uh, end up. But, no. you know, if he's got this little cast and he's always going to have a Rachel Weiss or Emma Stone or Olivia Coleman on call, he's going to be fine. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what he makes, it's going to be fine. Yeah. it's it, You get into like the, the Wes Anderson thing and it's like, yeah. hey, all five actors are using every single yeah. movie. Can you come out this summer? It's like, for- even if the movie's not good, people are going to come and watch. And now yeah. like Timothy Chamolet and uh, all these guys <laughs> pop up and you're like, I'll watch it. It's the only time I want to watch Adrian Brody. We do need to rate this film, but before we do, that is what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. Let us know too if uh, you are a, a woman with four cars, two kids, a big condo. You can find us on None Twitter. None of the minivans. Like it's just four Porsche Carreras or whatever. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also do release videos on our YouTube channel. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page. That's letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Something you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Dave, uh, let's get to the rating of this movie. So what would you give the favorite out of five? I'm giving it a five. I, I love Whoa. this movie. Yeah. A very uncharacteristic five from Dave yeah. over here. I struggle to find any part of this I don't like uh, for me. And mm-hmm. when I watched it last night, I was just thinking about, can I Dave this? Can I find <laughs> something I can hang some kind of negative hat on? But I couldn't. I love all of it. Well, this is this is a really weird situation because this very rarely happens um, where you're this high above me. I'm giving it a three and a half. Which is shocking. Which is, I, I honestly did consider giving this a four on this rewatch because I gave it a three and a half the first time I watched it. And I was like, you know, it's like the jokes are really good. The performance is so good. And it's I, like I said, I'm the weird outlier where the, the visuals really bug me to the point where like I can't, I just cannot bump it up to that little half star. I would love what we should do now that you've said that out loud is we should just do a quick scan of movies you've given three and a half mm-hmm. to 
over the last three years and then do a comparison. And then you can look how dumb your soft <laughs> ratings are for shit movies uh-huh. and how you're being a curmudgeon on this one. Because a three and a half is pretty low. Dave, I look Just forward. because he used a, a fisheye lens. I look <laughs> it's a oh, fucking Dave, joke. It's like, it's like, I didn't like this one character, so it's a two-star movie because there's one character I didn't like. Oh, it's a two-star movie because the character dragged the shit narrative down. I look forward to being the Dave of this podcast this season. Well, we'll see. <laughs> No, this is a good one to start off. It's it's a banger. It is good. Like I would recommend people to watch it. So you'll probably not have my weird Just issue. Just also to be clear, Kyle thinks an average movie is a three. So yeah, th- it's above average. This is an average, but everybody should watch it. And the performances are great and mm-hmm. they all deserve Oscars. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's good. Uh-huh, that's working uh-huh. out well, well for you. Uh. Next up, Dave, let's find out what we're <laughs> going to watch next time. I'm going to push this button here. Oh, we get to talk about Barry Jenkins next week, Dave. We're going to talk about If Beale Street Could Talk. I remember really liking this movie. It's based on a James Baldwin book. Um, So, yeah, I remember liking this quite a bit. I still have, like, these 19 rabbits that have kind of swarmed around us while we've been talking here. Here, you can take one home with you. It's cute, fluffy, probably delicious. Have you had (laughs) lepan before? Rabbit's pretty good meat. I've had hoss and pfeffer before, but that's about it. It's good meat. James Corden is more evil than me.